Hello, and welcome to the Alcohol Problem Podcast. I'm Dr. James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem. In this episode, I talk to Professor Tony Moss from London South Bank University's Centre for Addictive Behaviours Research. We discuss some of the key factors behind drinking behaviours and issues relating to understanding alcohol problems and their causes. So thanks for joining me, Tony. Can you just tell me a bit about um, what you do and what your background is? Yeah, uh, so my name's Tony Moss. I'm a professor of addictive behaviour science at London South Bank University in the Centre of Addictive Behaviours Research. My my background um, in addictions research particularly focuses on on alcohol use. Um, I also do work in gambling and more broadly around public health. My, my particular interest in in terms of uh, alcohol alcohol related harm has, has been focusing on addiction. Less about those people that are at the more extreme end who have developed really significant problems with addiction. Where when we talk about alcohol problems, that's what people tend to think about. They think about those people that are um, most heavily dependent. And my interest has been more around the prevention side of things and, and that much larger group of people who are experiencing some degree of harm from alcohol use but actually wouldn't in any way consider themselves to be a problem drinker um, or to have a problematic relationship with alcohol and that's a sort of an often overlooked area I think in, in our field. And so if we're thinking about what causes alcohol problems then I guess we should start with you know what we're including in that definition of problems and you know, there's lots of different ways to do that but broadly we'd say you know there's a continuum of alcohol use and harms and the recommended guideline, kind of 14 units a week, fairly arbitrary in a sense, but it is sort of derived from a lot of population data that shows kind of the more you go above that risk level of 14 units as an average healthy adult, the more the risks go up. But then there'll be a range of factors, won't there, sort of individually and environmentally that would influence the degree to which someone would develop a range of different problems, whether those be sort of um, related to addiction or dependence or whether they might be just kind of problems associated with their general functioning or mood or well-being. But yeah, like, is it possible to start with a broad question and say what causes alcohol problems or is that just trying to sort of bite off more you can chew in one go? Uh, well, I'll give it a go. I mean, I suppose the first thing I'd, I'd kind of come to is that question about what, what we think of an alcohol problem is or what problems can, can arise from alcohol use. Um, and I think that is something that, that's, that's often misunderstood and partly because we tend to think about the most extreme problems for, from alcohol use, um, including things like psychological and physical dependence or cirrhosis of the liver uh, and so on. One of the things, that, and particularly because of the sort of the cultural space that alcohol occupies in a way that, that most other drugs that, that are associated with addictions and other things tend not to occupy that similar spaces, um, that there's this sort of assumption that alcohol just occupies an everyday part of our lives, that it's a necessary component in social interactions, in you know, lots of different um, uh, aspects of, of people's daily lives. And, and the thing that I think is often misunderstood is that this idea that there can be sort of safe levels of alcohol use. You know, one of the one of the key things I'd always say about alcohol in terms of our relationship with it, whether, whether you drink or not, um, is to understand that it's it's not it's not part of a healthy diet. It's not one of your five a day. Um, there's there's you know, there's no sound argument to say that you're that if you're a non-drinker that you should start drinking a little bit because it would be better for you in the long run um it's something that you know a bit like fast food and other things you know high fat salt and sugar foods so that it's not adding anything in terms of health 
that's not to say that any amount of alcohol is going to cause you serious harm. Mm. Um, but I think that the way that it needs to be understood is that the more that you drink, the more you're exposing yourself to some risks of, 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 uh, of harm or adverse consequences in the long run. Um, and I think that that when we when we talk about those sorts of harms and risks, um, it's useful to maybe think about what that universe of harms could be. So I've already mentioned things like you know psychological and physical dependence, cirrhosis of the liver, the things that people might think about as being associated with um, you know, uh, very heavy alcohol use. Um, but alcohol also increases risks of uh, you know, cancer. Um, it's going to put you at risk of, of long-term chronic health issues, even down to things like putting on weight. You know, there's a lot of calories in alcohol. So the more alcohol that you're consuming, the more calories you take on, the more weight you put on. So, you know, I, overall, um, the risk of alcohol uh, use can be in the longer term detrimental you know, to, to our health in many ways. But then in the short term, the kind of the acute effects of drinking alcohol, even if you're not drinking necessarily a huge amount um, you know, on a daily basis, but you're drinking, you know, as we, we might describe as a binge drinker, so people that when they drink tend to get really quite heavily intoxicated, you're then putting yourself at risk of kind of acute harm. So things that might happen, you know, uh, falling over and breaking an arm or not being able to function the next day at work because of a hangover and so on, that kind of acute effects and also the longer term can have an effect in terms of mental health. So if you're you know, suffering with anxiety uh, or, or other um, you know, forms of mental health distress, then alcohol won't help with that. So there's a number of ways in which alcohol can cause these these, these different types of harm. And it's, again, all by degree. You know, that, that if Some people may have had a bit of a hangover and that may not be, for them, a massive kind of problem in their lives. Um, but if it's, if it's happening on a regular basis and impacting on relationships or work uh, you know, or, or mental uh, well-being, then that becomes more of a problem. So I think that that's a key thing is to start from this understanding that that alcohol use is in and of itself not something that you should think of as a sort of, you know, you're, you're doing yourself some good by having it. There needs to be an acceptance that any amount of alcohol that you're consuming is is increasing your risk slightly. Um, and that just comes back into that sort of universe of risk, if you like, that people might make for themselves on a, on a routine basis. You know, people people engage yeah. in all sorts of things that expose them to risk. So. Obviously, I'd agree with everything you said, but I guess I do feel from you know, the public's point of view, people are much more aware of all those risks now because of, probably not because of like responsible drinking campaigns and so on, but the dialogue and recognition around alcohol as a drug rather than just something that, you know, is kind of just part of what we do or part of the shopping or whatever. I think that has shifted quite a bit and... Um, you know, so I don't think it's necessarily a lack of awareness or understanding about alcohol as not being fundamentally healthy. Although I think there's a group of people that would still say, you know, a bit of red wine's good for you in moderation is fine and define their own moderation by how much they drink rather than anything to do with recommended guidelines. I would say that the general problem is more that people place a lot of value on what they know are the positive benefits or personally experienced positive benefits. And, you know, prize those in the moment benefits, at least particularly above those risks. So, yes, I don't disagree with anything you said. I just think as a public health message or as a way of kind of changing behaviour, just just kind of highlighting that even alcohol problems are more complex than or less severe than necessarily the stereotypes might account for, still isn't necessarily going to change people's drinking who are not necessarily problem drinkers in that they don't have addiction or dependence but are still placing their health at risk. I mean maybe that's not true to some extent like brief interventions we do know work where 
a health professional does essentially point out some of the risks and some of the benefits of cutting down. But yeah, I guess I'm just trying to say people are also very aware of the benefits. And whenever we start explaining the costs, I think it does tend Mm. to just sort of switch many people off because they're just sort of saying, well, I know it's not great for me, but I value it for Mm. these reasons. I I take the point that I think the information out there around alcohol and its harms is is perhaps better than it it used to be. I disagree that most people know. Um, I think certainly the evidence work we've done around gambling, for example, suggests that a significant number of people um, who gamble do not agree that gambling is something that carries any inherent risk. So, not not asking people, do you think that that you know, do you think that you personally have a, a, are experiencing harms from gambling? But just inherently, is there anything particularly risky about about, about gambling? There was some work a few years back, I think it may have been from, from colleagues in the Institute of Alcohol Studies, but I may be misremembering that, um, showing that actually unprompted, the majority of people actually don't identify most of the harms that can come from alcohol use. So it may have been that same study, you know, but, but, but I think that if you ask people just to sort of list what the harms of alcohol are, most people miss most of them. Um, if you prompt people and say, well, here are some things that could be harms from alcohol, mm then the recall can be a little bit better. So I'd argue that actually there is, there is weirdly for a drug, if you like, that's been around for, for such a long time, I think there's a huge deficit in public understanding um, about what those risks are. And the even bigger hurdle to get over is even if you get people to accept that alcohol is inherently risky, getting them to accept that they are personally exposed to those risks, we know from lots of other areas of health communication, that that's really difficult to do. So even if you get somebody to accept that, yes, if you drink alcohol, it will slightly increase your risk of cancer, even if you're a sort of a, sort of a fairly light drinker, it will slightly increase your risk of cancer. People can kind of know that information, but not personally apply it to themselves. Mm. So there's, there's, there's multiple hurdles to get over. And I, and I do really think that there is this, that, that alcohol for many people is still allowed to occupy this kind of special place in their lives, that it's almost... In, in the same way that people could be very, um, very sort of health aware in terms of their food and be looking at, you know, how many carbs they're having, how much sugar and saturated fat and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's, I don't, in my experience, it's not uncommon for people to then at the same time not have any interest almost mm. in, in alcohol from that sort of nutritional perspective. Um, and so I do think that alcohol, because of that very strong cultural tie it has, um, certainly, you know, encouraged by the alcohol industry is allowed to occupy this kind of, no man's land in a sort of nutrition and dietary sense and, and from a risk perspective. So, yeah, I think, I think I, I, I'm not aware of any evidence that suggests that actually public understanding of the harms of alcohol, even like theoretically not applied to themselves, is very good. I think the majority of people are actually unaware of the, the range of problems that can arise from heavier, longer-term alcohol use. But I, I suppose my point is even if we raise awareness, that, you know, we know that people who drink above the guidelines are much more likely to, to discount them, to say they they don't apply or they, they're not based in science or to employ psychological biases like defensive avoidance, you know, like where people, you know, smokers famously look away, you know, subconsciously look away from graphic health warnings. They just, you know, the attention avoidance of it is really strong. So I think, yeah, there's, it's, it's not just about, you know, filling a, a deficit to whatever extent it exists in the public understanding about the risks and harms of alcohol use. I agree that's a starting step and we, we can always build and improve on that. But, um, yeah, I'm sure you agree that, you know, we need to be much more nuanced and do a lot more than just kind of increase public understanding. Mm, and yeah. I guess just to go back to that, go back to the point about 
why many people, particularly people who might drink at levels above the guidelines or in a problematic or risky way or whatever, are more motivated to discount it, probably because they've placed higher personal value on the role that alcohol plays in their lives in terms of, you know, the positive motivations that they have for using alcohol, whether it's as a social lubricant, a de-stressor, you know, or just something even less consciously articulated. They just know on some level when they drink, they sort of feel good in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's definitely, I mean, and that's, that's the, the, the big problem with something like alcohol, um, as with many of the things to which, you know, unsurprisingly things that people can develop unhealthy relationships towards is that all of the, all of the benefits are usually immediate. Um, so people are not consuming alcohol and then the next morning waking up and that's when they have the sort of positive experience. The negatives come later, the positive come earlier. So, you know, in the moment when someone's having a drink, if it's, if they're drinking to enhance a social situation, if they're drinking to cope with stress, whatever the, motivation might be usually that's being fulfilled there and then um, and just from a sort of a human learning perspective we we learn we learn behaviors much more quickly and those behaviors become a lot more kind of solidified if you like um when when the reward is is associated closely with the behavior that you're doing when the negative consequences are further in the in the future from a sort of a psychological perspective they have a much weaker impact or a weaker pull on our behavior so the fact you know the People sort of sometimes like wake up and go, oh, I'm never drinking again. You know, sort of the, the, the reason that often they'll end up doing it again is because in terms of that kind of learning process, the negative consequence has happened in time a lot later than the behavior that they did. Now, I suppose one, one of the things that, that does interest me in terms of why it is that, that people may think the way they do about their alcohol use and, and, you know, to your point about is it, is it kind of almost justifying or rationalizing their, their, their relationship with alcohol, ignoring the negatives, focusing on the positives? For me, one of the really big factors in this is is that it's just really difficult to change your behaviour. Um, and so we understand that, you know, there's lots of evidence to show that, that the ways in which people uh, drink alcohol, so for those people that do consume alcohol, um, those kinds of beliefs and motivations, you know, let's take a really uh, you know, a very typical example. There, there are lots of different motivations for drinking alcohol. You can drink because you think it enhances social situations. You can drink because it's something you do to cope. You can drink because you're conforming with other people around you. Those motivations will develop many years before you ever encounter alcohol. Um, so socially, because alcohol is so present in so many people's lives, even in their younger, you know, sort of their, their childhood, we're developing these sorts of thoughts and beliefs about alcohol that will be very similar to you know, parents and other people around us when we're young. So that when we then encounter alcohol for the first time, it's almost like you know, people sort of recognise it as like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You engage with alcohol in the way that you've seen it engaged with before. And, and one of the sort of the, the fallacies about kind of personal control and responsibility and the idea that people sort of are choosing or if they're not choosing, they must be in denial is that even if you're not, even if you accept that you've got in some way a relationship with alcohol that you would like to change, it's really, really difficult to do because it, you know, it could be that you're in your mid to late twenties or your thirties or your forties and you think, you know, maybe, maybe I do need to sort of reset my relationship with alcohol in some way, whether that's choosing not to drink, whether it's, you know, choosing to, to cut down or moderate. The problem is you have got years and years and years of learning of those kind of automatic implicit associations about how you drink that you can't just click your finger and undo. And so when you're in situations where you're drinking, it can be really easy to revert to type that you, that the, the reason that you end up drinking in the way that you always have done is, is simply because that is what you always have done. 
Uh, and of course, the, the pharmacological effect, psychopharmacological effect, is that it explicitly impairs those parts of the brain that help us to make more conscious, effortful decisions. And so we become more reliant on just kind of acting out those habits, if you like, that we've got. Uh, and so for me, that's one of the big, the, the bigger reasons, if, if you like, as to why it is that people, after the fact, if you ask them, why is it that you're drinking in the way that you do, they may consciously kind of express to you, well, the reason I do it is because, you know, I enjoy it and it's not going to cause me any harm. But actually, I don't think that's the reason. I think that for a lot of people, the reason they don't change is that, that changing behaviours of this kind is not an easy thing to do. Um, it's certainly possible. And there are loads of people that have changed you know, and, and continue to change their relationship with alcohol. Um, but, but the idea that it's something that is um, just a matter of making a decision and going, that's it, I'm going I'm to you know, sort of reset it, um, is, is just completely flawed. Um, but, it, but it's... It's not helped because alcohol does occupy this this kind of cultural space, you know, in, in, and it's different in different societies, but it's it's present in most that there are certain expectations about drinking, there are certain uh, social norms about drinking that you know really have this big impact on how people engage with it. And I think um, you know there's a good body of evidence that shows most people who change from problematic or heavy alcohol problems often do so when there's a kind of clear emergence of physical health problems or, you know, some serious consequence that, that really, you know, they may, you know, one study suggested people were kind of aware that their drinking was deemed, a, would be deemed at a problematic level for, you know, often maybe 10 years before mm. making a change, but it wasn't until kind of consequences really caught up with that person. Probably the same is true of something like smoking. You know, people mm. often smoke for many years knowing full well that it's harmful for them to, but until it actually, until there's maybe a diagnosis of cancer or bronchitis or whatever, that might not trigger change. So I don't know, like certainly Robert West, I've heard say, you know, all behaviour is a competition of motivation. So it kind of makes sense to me in, in that way that, you know, it's not until the harms are present and that it actually sort of impinges on our kind of motivation to use alcohol for all the reasons that you've explained, whether they're implicit and cultural or just experienced as positive in the moment would you agree with that yeah, yeah definitely and i think there's um you know and, and i think for some people they, they can experience harms as a result of their use of alcohol like, over a longer period and even when they experience the harms they still may not recognize that it's in any way linked to the to, mm. to their relationship with alcohol and that can even be missed by healthcare professionals so to take a you know a hypothetical example um, if I if I was to drink half a bottle of wine every night regularly, um, I'd be drinking significantly above the the, the, the low risk um, drinking guidelines. A number of different sort of health consequences, chronic health problems uh, as I get older. Problem is, if I'm drinking half a bottle of wine every single night regularly, and say let's just say hypothetically, I you know I never go out and I never get quite kind of drunk. Drinking half a bottle of wine on a regular basis you'll never actually get yourself really drunk. You'll never experience being like really intoxicated because that level of alcohol use, once you develop a sort of tolerance to it, you won't feel impaired. You drink half a bottle of wine and that would be it. If I did that for 20 or 30 years, then it's going to have all sorts of effects on my body. So not just the effects of the alcohol itself, it's probably going to be associated with weight gain because of you know just those additional calories every single day on top of an ordinary diet. Um, and so I may get into midlife and start to experience, you know, various different sorts of health, health problems, increased risk of stroke, cardiac problems, um, and so on and so forth. But there's never going to be a trigger where I kind of think it's because of my alcohol use, because my alcohol use will have sort of appeared almost kind of non-problematic throughout my life. I might be thinking, oh, maybe I just need to change my diet a little bit. 
and, and it's back to this idea that I think alcohol occupies this protected space. People might, you know, might start thinking, oh, I need to start eating more healthily or sort of, you know, start exercising or something. And I think that's the, the, the challenge yeah. is that, that there's, there is, for, for when we talk about these longer term uh, problems that are associated with alcohol use, there isn't always that immediate trigger. There's not that, um, you know, I, I, I got really drunk and I blacked out and I don't know what, you know, I woke up somewhere or whatever where you might, you know, that, that could be a wake up call the next day and you think, oh, you know, I just went overboard or something. There, there can be these harms that happen over a very, very long period that, that will never get connected to their alcohol use. Yeah, of course. And, you know, people can always rationalize, you know, their drinking. And I agree, you know, it occupies this very, uh, protected space or culturally normalized space and some of the work we've done together that points to how you know certain stereotypes of alcoholism in inverted commas you know are drawn on by people who maybe would still argue that they're not a problem drinker or, or however wouldn't frame it in that way but mm. because they are still in control of their drinking um and even you know some qualitative research showing how you know binge drinkers will say I'm not a problem because, you know, I don't drink for most of the week. I just go out and have a bit of fun when I drink. It's, mm. it's the people that drink on their own indoors on a daily basis mm. or whatever. So there's always someone else to other. And I agree. But I'd still sort of think that, that that's motivated by, you know, othering is motivated not just by the fear of wanting to protect oneself from the stigma of being labelled a problem drinker, but also because, you know, on some level they value value their drinking and, those kind of non-tangible or future or un- as yet unexperienced or unidentified mm. health problems in particular are just not going to be sufficiently powerful enough to motivate them to give up what they, they really value. And maybe they overvalue alcohol. Maybe in some ways you could argue they undervalue mm. it depending on the person. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, it's back to that kind of cultural context as well. But I think it's not necessarily even always about motivation um, unless you expand your definition of motivation to mean anything that a person does to the extent that I think sometimes it can be completely habitual so it can be that in certain situations people just assume that they're going to drink because they've been invited to a party mm. or they've been, you know, their friends popping around or whatever it might be so sometimes I think it can be quite banal and uninteresting as to why it is that someone's choosing to drink almost because they've just not considered the alternative which mm. is maybe won't have a drink you know um, so I think absolutely those kind of motivations and, and the more explicit valuation or you know, valuing of, of alcohol plays a role but it's certainly not the only role I think mm. it's back to this idea that as humans we are creatures of habit our behaviours in many different respects don't tend to change dramatically like for, you know, throughout the course of our lives unless something significant changes in our lives so like you said about people experiencing more serious harms that become quite salient and, and almost sort of unavoidable certainly you hear that a lot in the addictions literature uh, through recovery stories, people talking about having moments of clarity or epiphanies or, you know, spiritual awakenings. But, but I think that um, in the absence of those sorts of experiences, um, pe- people's behaviour very often just goes on down this track, which is the, the thing that they've always done. That, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't think that's always, in the sense of how people might ordinarily understand when we say people are being motivated or there's a motivation for it. I think in the ordinary you know, sense of understanding that term, um, it's, it's, it's much more... Um, I say much more banal and boring. It's just that, you know, I, I kind of did it because I just thought that's what was happening. You know? <laughs> uh, or I was in a situation where I always drink when I'm in that situation, so I just did. But, but it does seem like there is, I think, you know, obviously within younger generations, changes in what their expectancies are around alcohol. And, you know, obviously it's very hard to unpick 
the reason or reasons behind these declines in young people's drinking. But, you know, it, I suppose it's interesting to, to say why is it happening amongst young people? Their drinking as a, a whole is, is, is lessening, but middle-aged and older groups are not. Mm. Maybe in part just because um, their drinking habits are more embedded and, mm. um, you know, they're not experiencing the same kind of uh, changes in all the other things that are going around that are much more dramatically affecting younger age groups. Yeah, I mean, I think there's yeah, there's there's a lot of debate on that. I don't think we've got a clear answer yet as to why it is that there is that, that change in, in alcohol use uh, amongst younger people. It's almost certainly going to be a complicated answer. You know, there's all big cultural changes that have happened. I mean, um, you know, even when you think about social media and the connections that people make and the awareness of health and so on and so forth, um, I'd like to think that, that to some extent those things have played a positive role. I think we particularly demonise social media and people's use of the internet and so on. I assume it's always a bad thing, but there does there is an element of it also, you know, providing a space to kind of liberate information. Even you know, thinking back to when I was younger, it would be really hard to find out mm. any information about you know alcohol use. Thinking back to you know, my parents, if they wanted to find out, so you know, the internet wasn't even mm. around. So you know, there's there's, there's there's a sort of a positive to that. And, uh, you know, I know that there are people that have argued that there is a sort of greater health awareness in young people and so on. Um, to, to the other question as to why is that the older adults um, aren't necessarily changing the drinking, I guess I'd revert back to what I said before, which is it's because most people most of the time don't make really significant changes to their to their behaviour in, in almost all areas of their life, you know, unless you're making a, a special effort, if you, if you like. So you're making a special effort to change your diet by going, you know, sort of joining Weight Watchers or Slimming World or something like that. You know, people... People can make very concerted efforts to change their behaviour. They can often be unsuccessful in that, you know, certainly in the context of dieting. You know, there's lots of evidence around people, the sort of yo-yo dieting almost, just going from one sort of, you know, attempt to lose weight, putting weight back on and so on. It can, and that, again, just reflects how difficult it can be to mm. just change the, you know, get, get off of that path of least resistance. Um, and I think with alcohol, that there is that sort of competing. If, if it's a, if somebody who is, if somebody's not experiencing any kind of acute or obvious or salient harm, or they're experiencing acute or salient harms, which to them simply sort of seem almost like within the realms of acceptability, sort of thinking, well, yeah, I do once a week get a hangover, but I enjoy that night out so much that I kind of wouldn't want to give it up. Yeah. So, you know, people could be making that, but you know, could well be making those sorts of judgments. Um, but yeah, to, to, to make that concerted effort to change your alcohol use is, is tough as with any behavior change. Mm-hmm coupled with the fact that it can be socially really difficult to mm. do that because suddenly people are asking you questions about it. Mm. You know, why are you not drinking? Um, is it because you're on antibiotics? You know, have you caught religion or whatever it might be? You know, people will, will often, and people that, that try to make changes to their drinking very often experience that, uh, very often experience that kind of social pressure. We did some work on this a few, a couple of years ago, looking at peer pressure amongst adults. I mean, it's a fascinating area because we just associate peer mm. pressure with kids. We think, you know, kids are the only ones that get mm. pressured by their peers. Um, but there's actually some really interesting work out there looking at the role of peer pressure in adult drinking and, and this idea that people end up sort of just caving into expectations uh, from other people and the difficulties that they have navigating that, you know, whether it's explaining to other people, other people then maybe taking your views about alcohol use as a criticism of their own, People sort of thinking, you know, is, is the way that I do this just to not socialise with these, this group of friends anymore? You know, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think it's a, it's an, um, certainly from a research perspective, it's a, an understudied area. And I think just socially in general, I don't think we kind of talk enough about that. But, but if you want to change a behaviour like alcohol use, which is for many, many people very connected with their social interactions with, you know, friends and, and loved ones, 
um, that, that actually trying to make changes on your own in that context when no one else is trying mm. to make a change is going to be another explanation as to why it is that, you know, why are older adults you know, experiencing more harm and not changing their alcohol use? It's for those sorts of reasons. Yeah, and I think that links to some of the evidence around why peer support works because it you know, provides people with a supportive environment yeah, yeah. towards that, that change and provides them with a social network and sense of belonging in an environment that, yeah, it's the, the opposite to what they're kind of used to. Um, and what, what about some of the other sort of risk factors for developing alcohol problems? So we've talked quite a bit about kind of cultural normality and social expectations or social pressures on drinking but um you know people obviously obviously interested in things like genetics and mm. you know i have probably fairly strong views on the you know the, the role of genetics being vastly overestimated by the mm. general public um mm. no it's, it's not i don't think they play any role that there aren't sort of genes that are associated with certain types of, of risk factors that may all cluster together and genes interact with the environment it's not kind of nature or nurture is it but you know like i think these kind of genome-wide association studies have kind of come out with this sort of missing heritability gap that the the variance or the amount of drinking or drinking problems that can be attributed to genetics i think now appears much lower than you know some of the figures that, that used to be derived from kind of twin studies and so on yeah, I mean, um, so on that wider set of um, factors that influence the way people drink. So, if you're thinking a bit from a, you know from a personal perspective, if you're reflecting on your own use of alcohol, why you drink alcohol in the way that you do, and whether or not that's because you've you you have or have had uh, a more serious, um, more kind of severe uh, form of alcohol dependence or something like that, or because you're just a really heavy drinker and you're thinking maybe I need to cut back, or, or whatever, you know, whatever your relationship with alcohol is, uh, up to and including being a non-drinker. Um, it's kind of almost a moot point as to the role that genetics plays. I think, you know, there's a lot of research on it and people do tend to, they, they love a genetic study because, you know, suddenly you can get a headline in the newspaper, you know, genetic you know, alcohol dependence is, is inherited or, you know, there are, there are sort of brain disease causes or whatever else for these sorts of issues. I guess like a, a simple thought experiment maybe helps to sort of put it into context and then I'll get on to actually the, 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 the strength of the evidence. Um, if there was a genetic role that, that, was played in terms of determining how a person chooses to, to or how a person ends up using using alcohol in their lives. If there was a genetic component to it, how useful would it be if somebody said, I've got a test, do this test and I'll tell you if you've got that gene or not. The problem with it is, is that even if that test existed, and there are companies out there that will say they'll do this and they'll give you this sort of you know, genetic screening for various different things, as long as you pay them, of course, um, that if, that, if you can get that genetic test done, you get told you've got that gene, does that mean that therefore you just accept that however you interact with alcohol is, is just unchangeable because you've got the gene and that means that you're going to have this relationship with alcohol that's you know determined by your genes? Well, no, that's nonsense. You shouldn't accept that if you've got that particular genotype that there's no way that you can change the way that, that, that you're, you're using alcohol. And equally, if you get the test done, so you know the only other alternative is you get it done and they say you haven't got this this gene for alcohol dependence or whatever you might want to call it does that mean that you don't have to worry about the use of alcohol you kind of go i can do whatever i want with it because i'll never develop a problem well of course that's absurd as well so when people ask that question you know can you inherit alcohol problems and that sort of thing um it's because the relationship that we have with alcohol is so influenced by the culture that we live in the time that we live in 
the influence of so many different things, the influence of what we're seeing when we're growing up, the, you know, those early childhood experiences, all of those different factors play such a significant role that, that even if there was evidence that it was in any way linked to genetics, and the evidence is very, very weak, so you know, it's not that it's com- completely uh, non-existent, but it's very, very weak, um, it, in a practical sense, it's, it's not even worth thinking about. Um, and it, it, it's, it's problematic, in my view, to be thinking about that and to when, when people get really interested in that, so I get why people are interested in it, but when they start seeing it as being some really useful way of understanding the relationship with alcohol, it's that danger of almost biological determinism that, that as, you know, either I've got the gene and it means that I can't change my behaviour, which is nonsense and untrue, or I haven't got the gene, therefore I don't have to worry, which is nonsense and untrue. Yeah, and you know what, what he's kind of recent studies are showing is there's, there's definitely no single gene that mm. kind of plays any sort of significant role in that risk. But, you know, if you add up thousands of genes together, there might be a, a slightly increased or, you know, mm. some of the figures between sort of single figures and mm. some creeping into double figures. Um, but yeah, I'd agree. And I think it does kind of go back to that need to try and make sense of or feel like, you know, there's certain things that are within or outside of our control because, mm those kind of beliefs can be kind of comforting. And, and you mentioned the sort of brain disease there as well. You've recently co-edited a book on brain disease model of addiction. I mean, do you have any particular observations in terms of how kind of brain disease model of uh, idea of addiction um, particularly relates to alcohol problems? I mean, obviously, there are variations of the disease model. And, you know, in a sense, it's it's practical utility is to be able to say, well, I have this disease and therefore I need to just mm. abstain from alcohol completely. And for many people, that's a very functional and useful role and also provides a kind of shared identity perhaps within certain contexts. But, mm. you know, the science is probably less clear. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, the, the brain disease model specifically, I think, is a, is a reflection in, you know, certain, certain parts of the scientific, you know, community, particularly in certain countries. Uh, the United States in particular, this tendency to want to medicalise all problems and kind of say, you know, is, is there is there some ultimate explanation as to why it is that some people can get with, you know, whether it's with alcohol or other drugs or gambling, they can get to a position where it appears, may feel to them and it may appear to other people that they've almost completely lost control over what they're doing. They're unable to, to stop, they're unable to, to, to sort of give it up um, or to change their behaviour. And the problem with that is it's just too simplistic an explanation. I mean, there's a whole big debate, and listeners could, of course, buy the book and have a good read of it, because fantastic chapters for and against the brain disease mm. model. But um, I think the way that I'd sort of sum it up is that, you know, of course the brain plays a role in our behaviour. It's not that the brain does not play a role in our behaviour. And absolutely, as you said, there are people for whom, for, from a very personal and a very individual level, seeing their relationship with alcohol when it has become so extreme and in some cases really destructive in their lives framing that problem as being a problem rooted in this sense of having a disease or thinking that they're in some sense different to other people and that they can't have the same kind of relationship with alcohol that other people might appear to be able to have. Um, If that helps a person with their journey through recovery or change, that's not something anyone should be kind of, you know, contesting. The problem is when it works the other way round, the scientific community tries to impose that view and say this is this is something that everybody should be thinking because actually the evidence isn't there to support that idea. The other negative consequence, and certainly from your own research in this area, the other negative consequence of thinking in that way um, is it goes back to this kind of biological determinism almost. But the, the, the consequence of that is it makes everything very binary and it means that people then have to think, well, am I a problem drinker or not? Um, 
and, and what I kind of began with when I was talking about that kind of universe of different harms and that sort of spectrum of, of harms that people can experience. Um, the idea that there is this group of people in society who are the problem drinkers and then everybody else is, is, is really unhelpful. It certainly plays into an industry narrative, this idea that the majority of people can, can use alcohol and experience no harm from it at all. And it's all fine and it's all good fun. And you don't need to worry about it. And then we've got this really small proportion of people that we should worry about because they're the problem drinkers. That that completely misrepresents the way that people should understand alcohol and their relationship with it. I mean, also to a large extent as well for people that are kind of on on the margins of, of having um, periods in their lives where they're drinking more heavily than others. It, it sort of ignores this nuance that actually people's relationship with alcohol can fluctuate from time to time. A good example of that would be people who have a strong motivation around drinking to cope. So if you're the sort of person who associates alcohol with dealing with stressful situations, um, and, and to be clear, not everybody does. There are people who do, do associate alcohol use with having a good time and having fun, and those people will tend to drink more heavily if they're at a party or down the pub or you know, sort of in, in the company of friends. But there are people who associate alcohol with, with dealing with negative emotion. So you know, people might, you might call it kind of self-medication. And the problem for, for people who have that as a very strong motivator for their use of alcohol is, of course, what happens if they go through a period in their lives where they're under a huge amount of stress? You know, if you've got that motivation, if you strongly associate alcohol with when I'm feeling anxious, if I'm feeling stressed, if I'm feeling low mood or low affect, then I find that alcohol helps or I think that alcohol helps. Then, of course, if you go through a period in your life where things are impacting on you that you can't do anything about, then you're naturally going to see your alcohol use increase. And so you could develop you know, problems in that kind of acute phase, if you like, where you're drinking more and more heavily. The alcohol, of course, is never going to actually solve any of the problems. They're still there the next day. But the alcohol use, you know, things will spiral. It starts to affect, affect your mental health because you know, it will increase anxiety over time uh, and so on. So, you know, I suppose back to this idea that, you know, is it a brain disease or not? For, for some individual people, they may find that it's a useful way to frame their own understanding. And absolutely, some people may simply find that they get to a stage where their relationship with alcohol, their experience of using alcohol has become so almost traumatic in itself that it's, it's caused it's caused them such harm. They've got such strong associations and memories associated with their alcohol use that actually it may well be the best thing for them in the long run to just try to never drink again. And they'll be happier if they don't. And that's the journey that will will best suit them. Um, But I think having that kind of binary distinction that there are those people that just shouldn't drink again because they're alcoholics and then everybody else who doesn't experience harm is a real problem. But it's what this brain disease model perpetuates, this idea that there is this special group of people who have got a serious problem somehow rooted in the brain, um, and then everybody else doesn't need to worry. But wouldn't some argue that a brain disease is characterised by significant neuroadaptation? That means that the state of the brain, as you know, obviously Mark Lewis would just argue that you know the brain changes when we do all kinds of things, but an extreme form of change doesn't necessarily mm. represent disease. But you know, it sort of intuitively, on one level, does make sense to think that if you're your brain has become so adapted and so sensitised to alcohol-related cues or triggers that on one level that does make sense to sort of pathologise it and say that brain has sort of become diseased as a a result of prolonged heavy use of alcohol and all its associations with it. Um, I think think there's a difference between... So when we talk about neuroadaptation, that's not a pathological process. And neuroadaptation in and of itself is what the brain constantly does. It's how we learn and develop. The brain's plastic, you know, and 
Mark says that more eloquently than, than I would certainly. The other idea is whether we're talking about literal damage caused to the brain. So, you know, in more extreme cases, Vernix and Korsakoff syndrome and so on. So, you know, but that in itself doesn't constitute a brain disease of addiction. You know, and I think they're the argument that, that uh, as, you, as you say, some people would make this argument that for some people, perhaps the, perhaps the neuroadaptations become so profound that it makes sense to pathologize it and talk about it as a disease. The problem is again, almost back to that kind of clinical and practical utility. Mm. So, so, we're sort of stretching our definition of what a disease would be. So in much, in much the same way that uh, for someone developing uh, you know, a degenerative um, age-related brain disease, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and so on, you, you can put someone into an MRI scanner at a certain point, identify structural and functional changes in the brain, and, and an experienced clinician would be able to look at you know, hmm. a brain scan and say, without even meeting the person, yeah. this, this looks like a brain where Alzheimer's or Parkinson's hmm. is developing. Um, the problem is that we cannot do that with alcohol. The other, the other sort of challenge is, is, is how it is that so many people are then able to spontaneously recover, mm. as it were. So this sort of, this notion that addictions are, um, for, for, you know, completely kind of uncontrollable, if you like, that you literally lose control mm. and you're, you know, once you're an addict, you've got this brain disease and you simply can't stop. Um, there are many people who get to really, you know, very, heavy psychological and physical dependence who actually manage to overcome that mm. without any structured help or support. So there's what we call spontaneous or natural recovery. So if they had a brain disease, it, it simply wouldn't be possible to do mm. that. You know, you, you can't simply choose to not have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's anymore. So if, and, and if we accept that those are brain diseases and then we say that addiction is a brain disease, then the question would be, well, how can somebody spontaneously recover um, and simply choose to change? Um, and it's much more complex than that, you know, the sort of factors that impacts on spontaneous or natural recovery. It's not simply just the person going, I'm just going to change now. There'll be lots of other factors, social and psychological and, you know, all these other things that are impacting on, um, the way that people's behavior is being shaped. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a simplification of a really complicated area. But, you know, as I say, the way that people use alcohol is, is, is of course, it's going to be influenced by the, uh, the physical response that you have to alcohol. So our bodies are all different. There are loads of differences between people in terms of, you know, um, the extent to which they experience more or less severe hangovers. You know, there's just natural biological variations between people, um, none of which are pathological. It's not that people who don't experience really bad hangovers have got a pathology with their body. It's just that that's their, their biological makeup mm. differs slightly from other people's. And so all of those sorts of factors can play into um, how a person uses alcohol and so on and so forth. And again, it's this, what, what we tend to do when we talk about complex issues, I think just generally is to almost kind of get down to, but there must be one thing. There must be one really, you know, can we just say it's that? Can we just say it's, you know, uh, it's just your, your a traumatic upbringing or it's a, a brain disease or something. The reality is that there'll be people for whom that may well be true, but there'll also be people for whom it's not. Uh, and you know, our explanation of alcohol problems, how they develop, why they develop, um, how people can change them. Our explanation of all of those things has to be complicated because it is complicated. Like it's complicated and lots of people have what might seem to be very similar experiences that have led them to a similar place. But when you dig down, you find out that actually there are massive differences in the experiences and, and things that people have had. And then just finally, briefly, um, no, I know you pretty well. We've, uh, we've had a, a drink together sometimes, but you know, what, what do you get from alcohol and how do you sort of view your drinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I fall generally into that camp of drinking for enhancement, like it's, uh, it's a, which is a blessing and a curse. And I'll sort of come on to that on that sort of thing about drinking to cope. If I'm sort of experiencing, you know, more 
pressure at work, I'm feeling more stressed out, or you know, thinking back to when the kids were younger, or you know, even as they are now. Um, I've never really associated drinking alcohol with um, with dealing with negative emotions. If anything, if I'm sort of feeling stressed or anxious or something, I'll be I'll be less inclined to want to have a drink. When I think back to my childhood growing up, alcohol wasn't really sort of consumed quite he- heavily in front of me. You know, I don't, I don't remember sort of ever seeing my, my, my parents drunk or you know sort of family members drunk. It wasn't. It wasn't that people didn't drink, but I don't remember sort of seeing people drinking really heavily. Um, but I also had like really positive memories when I was growing up about sort of family get together. So particularly sort of, you know, aunts and uncles on my mum's side and we'd have sort of Christmas parties or birthday parties where people would be drinking, but everyone would be having fun. And there'd be, you know, I don't ever remember there being a fight or ever remember there being, you know, someone sort of passing out or throwing up or anything like that. So back to that sort of thing about your early childhood experiences, if you like, have a really formative impact on, uh, your own alcohol use and I think that certainly is you know is, is part of my own uh, relationship with alcohol the challenge for me with that I think is that, that over the years I've found that um, I, I can go overboard if I'm enjoying the situation too much so you know kind of going out for a quick drink certainly I remember during my PhD it sort of you know it became quite a regular thing popping out for uh, out for a drink after work just for a quick one um, and what what would tend to happen is that I keep having one quick one after another until eventually the pub had closed um, and what I've tried to do over the years or you know thinking about because that was never great like you know drinking too much or getting home late or you know, uh, you know spending more money than, than I wanted to uh, or could afford at the time as a student um, and, and one of the things that, that in terms of my own and, and maybe again sort of back to reflecting on this idea that behavior can be really hard to change is I've tried to do things quite consciously before I, if I'm going to go out for a drink where I almost kind of accept that that's something that's about once I've had a few drinks I'll be there and I'll be in the company of friends having a really good time and I just won't want to go because I'm enjoying it like why would why would I want to get up and go so to speak but what I'll try and do is make sure that I actually eat you know that's one of the big things for me is that going for a quick drink after work I'm only going to have a couple and then I'll be home um, is that you don't then order food because you know I'm not staying for that long um, but one of the practical consequences of not eating is that you'll get intoxicated more quickly and so on. So, you know, there, there, there are things that I've done over the years. And, you know, I, I choose where I can to drink lower strength beers, you know, try to avoid drinking spirits. I've never been sort of that big into wine, as, as you know. Uh, and, you know, but there, there are those things. It doesn't mean that sometimes I don't still slip. You know, I might still kind of sometimes kid myself I'm going to pop out for a quick one and then I'll, I'll go straight home. Sometimes I manage it and, and sometimes I don't. But, yeah, that, that's sort of the relationship I have with alcohol. It, it, it in moderation for me serves a kind of a positive purpose in terms of like, you know, going out and having a laugh and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that I have got the bit, you know, if, if, <laughs> if I'm having too much fun, then, mm. then that was just once I've had a few drinks, that'll really mitigate against me thinking, you know, I should probably leave now, you know, sort of some friends, yourself included, that can just sort of go, yeah, I've had enough. I'm going to go home now. And like for me, I've, I've experienced that I don't have that off button. Um, in those situations but yeah that's what about if if you'd go out in those situations without drinking mm. would, what is it about the alcohol that's enhancing or adding to mm. that is it how much of that is psychological or association or placebo or whatever? I honestly think it's it's the majority of it mm. is psychological I've certainly so actually even just this Halloween just gone so uh went to a Halloween party around my, my older brothers and took the kids with us and because I was driving I drank alcohol free beers and I had just as much of a good time and I've done that loads before like it doesn't you know uh, I have to say I don't tend to do it in pubs partly because there's not usually a decent selection of you know it'll be Beck's Blue which tastes just as bad as 
Beck's normal, but uh, <laughs> there are other bad beers available. Yes. Yeah, the <laughs> anti-product placement there. But you know, you tend not to get a good selection of you know alcohol-free drinks. But if I'm you know family gatherings and stuff, I'm really quite happy to not drink. You know, I can, I can have just as much of a good time. Um, you know, I think I probably would do that more often in a in a pub setting if the, if there was the sort yeah. of alcohol-free drinks that I like. But absolutely, like I'm not. I don't feel that if I'm in the company of other people that are drinking, certainly didn't mm. this this Halloween just gone. In no way, kind of felt like I was outside of the bubble, or you know, not on the same level as other people. Um, and and the weird thing about alcohol-free uh, drinks is that you, you get the full full impact of that placebo effect, even though you know, like it's not yeah. it's not a sort of a secret placebo. I mean, just to finish, maybe on a sort of a, a, I don't know if it's a funny anecdote. It's, it's an anecdote, and other people can judge if it's funny. Um, I, I didn't learn to drive until about my mid twenties, I think. Um, it's partly being a Londoner and just constantly on public transport, and you know, cars too expensive to park in the East End of London and get insurance when you were, were eighteen. Uh, certainly for me, at least. So I didn't learn to drive for, for quite a few years. And when my, my now wife uh, and I were together earlier in a relationship, she she was driving and I didn't. And then passed my driving test, and we went out um, for lunch one day, and I'd, I'd driven us. Um, it was probably only a few months after I got my license. Um, and it was a really hot summer's day. We sat in this, um, garden, in this kind of pub garden or something. And we both had an alcohol free drink. You know, she said, Oh, well, don't worry, I'll get, get this off. I think she had lemonade or something. I said, Oh, I might get one of these, uh, I think it may have even been Bex Blue. And I had two of them. And I remember saying to her, Do you mind driving home? Because <laughs> I actually feel a little bit, and it was partly that, that, you know, it, it was really bizarre, but that sort of feeling of just being a bit chilled out and a bit more relaxed and all the rest of it, um, combined with also, you know, when you've just passed your driving mm. test, you're a little bit more, oh, you know, everything's a bit more, uh, kind of, you're a bit more sort of conscious of it. But genuine, she drove us home because I honestly felt like, oh, I don't know if I should drive anything mm. like this. Um, and I, I do absolutely like that sort of placebo effect that, you know, someone going into a pub, having a drink and going, oh, that's it, yeah. you know, sort of yeah. that, that, the pharmacological effects of alcohol when you drink it, you know, can, can take up to an hour to get into mm. your bloodstream, you know, and, and certainly uh, getting enough. So, yeah, I think that for me is, is very much a sort of psychological thing. Yeah. It's funny, I actually knew someone when I was an undergrad going back quite a while ago when there were very few alcohol free beers, but he hadn't, he was a mature student and hadn't drank for, I think, about 10 years and then tried a calibre. Mm. And he said, Oh, I feel really weird. And, you know, I think it was some kind of effect of feeling like in some way he'd, in inverted commas, sort of relapsed that created yeah. this feeling of sort of weirdness and other psychological mm. effects rather than probably anything yeah. that was in and the it's, it's, it's what makes alcohol as a drug. So mm. it, not, not, not entirely unique, but, but I mean, I mean, actually not entirely unique, but, but fairly unique, uh, in terms of the effect that it has. Is that it is so much mediated mm. by by psychology and by culture and by previous experiences. You know, it's it's the same reason that, that one person who, when they get drunk, can get you know really friendly and soppy mm. and all the rest of it. So, you know, another person can drink the exact same amount of alcohol and get really argumentative and aggressive. It's mm. not that, that there's no single effect that the the drug ethanol has on a person. Yeah. It's all really heavily mediated by those kind of tendencies and beliefs and so on. Um, and it can even vary from one person, mm. from one situation to the next. You know, that if in certain situations you think it's going to make you cry into the bottom of your glass and be all maudlin in other situations, it might make you life and soul of the party. Like the same, literally the same drug can have different, you know, impacts on you at different times. That's why people find it so hard to believe when you tell them certain drinks don't make you yeah, yeah, yeah. this way. I mean, yeah. exception if it's got caffeine in or whatever, but yeah, yeah. like you say, the active ingredient is ethanol, but mm. try and convince someone who 
thinks that they go crazy on white wine. Yeah, yeah. And that's not the case. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a very difficult thing. Um, brilliant. Well, Professor Tony Moss, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast. So please feel free to follow us or get in touch there.